one of the things that happened during 2020 that was good for one company at least is a, a company that goes by the name Peloton. Some of you have one uh, in your house, in your, uh, your bedroom or in your garage, wherever it may be, and that's fine. I've got one in, in our home that uh, we caved and, and got during 2020. And, and when you're using the, the Peloton bike or when you're using the Peloton app, um, a lot of times your trainer or the, the, the coach, whatever they're called on there, they'll, they'll get after you on there and they'll, they'll make you work and they'll make you sweat. That, that's their job. And through it, they're going to be pushing you. They're going to say, they're going to try to get you to understand what you're doing this for. They're going to keep your, your mentality going. Just think about those skinny jeans that you want to get into, or just think about whatever. They're, they're trying to remind you of the goal to remind you that, hey, the pain that you're putting in now is going to make it worth it down the road when you achieve your goal. That's effective, I think, um, in some regards, unless you can do what you can do on Peloton, is that is just mute the person, right? <laughs> well, we can't mute God, thankfully. And his word does that to a much greater level. And that's what Jesus is doing with the church in Philadelphia in the passage that we're looking at together tonight. So we've talking about preparing ourselves for this launch. We've been looking at the blueprints for the church, God's blueprints for the church. These are seven letters written from Jesus, the, the bridegroom of the church, to us, the church, to say, this is what's good, this is what's bad, this is what you should be doing. And so as we come to the church in Philadelphia, we come to the sixth of the seventh. And as we come to this passage, this is going to speak to us as we think about what do we do as Christians when we find ourselves in the valley? What do we do as Christians when we find ourselves in hard times? How do we keep going? How do we persevere? How do we press on when we find ourselves in more of the, the pains than we do the gains? So take your Bibles, open up to, to Philippians, to Revelation chapter 3. Don't go to Philippians chapter 3. That would be an entirely different sermon. Revelation chapter 3. Let me read it, and then I'll hit some about the city, as we always do. We'll talk about the church briefly, and then we'll get into the text. Jesus says this, and John records it for us. He says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may see your, seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear to let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Philadelphia, the city of what? Brotherly love, my birth city, actually. Not Philadelphia, Turkey, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 
but, but Philadelphia, the, the city of brotherly love is what it goes by. Philadelphia, philos, or phileo is the Greek word for love, and, and then adelphos is the word for brother. So that's where we get that brotherly love. What else do we know about this? Well, geographically, we know that this was a, a smaller city than the other cities that, that uh, Jesus had addressed so far in these letters in Revelation. The other ones were, were pretty significant. We had mentioned on quite a few of them that they were capital cities at one time or another during the, their history. Well, Philadelphia, not so much. But that doesn't mean that it was insignificant because it was located on a major trade route. In fact, to get to the eastern cities, you had to go through Philadelphia. Philadelphia also became a major hub of communication. It had a, a mail service outpost there in Philadelphia. So any communication going from the Roman Empire out to the eastern cities would flow through Philadelphia. So though this was a smaller city, it still was a significant city on the roadmap. It was actually founded, believe it or not, as a missionary city. Now you might think, great, but not that kind of a missionary city. It was a missionary city for Hellenism. It was a missionary city for the Greek culture. They founded uh, Philadelphia there uh, towards the east to be able to spread the, the Greek culture and influence out towards that, that area. And so that's what the purpose of Philadelphia was. It was a, a, an area that was a, a known for its seismic activity. In fact, Philadelphia was right in the shadow of an active volcano. In 17 AD, there was an earthquake that hit Philadelphia that destroyed basically everything there. Uh, a lot of the people fled the city, which will come into bearing in what Jesus writes to the city in a moment here. But a lot of people fled from the city, and even as Jesus wrote this to this church in the late 90s AD, there were still a lot of people living outside the city. Even though Rome had come in and rebuilt the city for uh, the, the, the residents there, they still didn't trust it. They still didn't feel safe within the walls of the city, so they would live outside and commute in to the city there. Uh, something interesting, Philadelphia was known for its wine production. It was one of the leading producers of wine in the area. Well, around this time, there was a major famine in the region. And so the Roman Empire came into the farmers in Philadelphia and said, you can't grow grapes anymore with this half of your field. You now need to grow corn because we need it for the empire. And so that crippled Philadelphia economically in a, a massive way. They fell under enormous uh, just poverty as, as the whole region went, not just the church, but the whole region, because one of their major uh, exports, which was wine, was cut in half when the empire came in and said, we need half of your fields for corn. That's the city. This is a broken record by now if you've been with us for a few weeks, but we don't know a whole lot about the church, aside from what's written in this letter. What we find in this letter is that this was a church potentially a little bit smaller in size than the others, which would make sense. It's a smaller city, a smaller church. He says in verse 8, though you have but little power, we also know from the letter that this was a church under persecution, but not necessarily persecution from the Romans or from any of the, the pagan deities and, and gods and goddesses and their followers in the region. But it seems, according to our letter at least, that they were under persecution from the Jews. And that has a lot to do, again, with what Jesus writes in the letter. Oh no, your phones are going off. Amber alert. You know what, let me stop down real quick. Let's pray for that. God, we don't know the situation going on there. We do know that it's here in Dallas, and we just pray that you would bring resolution swiftly to this. We pray that uh, if this is nefarious, if this is someone with ill intent towards this little child, we pray that you would stop what they're about to do and uh, arrest them, bring justice to the situation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we don't know much beyond what we find in the letter to this church. 
the greeting, though. How does it start? To the angel of the church in Sardis. Remember, angel, angelos, pastor, or messenger. Angel, it's translated in our Bibles in the ESV, the pastor of the church. To the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, write this. The words of the Holy One and the True One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one will open. One commentator said that this letter is the most eschatological of all of the seven letters that Jesus wrote to these churches. What that means is that this letter has the most to do with the end times, with the future, with the then and there more than the here and now of any of the seven letters that Jesus wrote. And I think he's right. And we see that even right away from the beginning when it says the words of the Holy One. What we need to understand there was that was a heavy messianic title for Jesus. Jesus was uh, applying a title to himself that the Jews, remember the, the main source of persecution for the church in Philadelphia, was this Jewish synagogue there. And Jesus is saying that the Holy One, the Messiah, the, the true Messiah is saying these things to you. In Mark 21, 24, we see this uh, apply to Jesus from the demons. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There you see even the demons recognize this as a title for the Son of God, the Messiah, the eternal second member of the Trinity. So as Jesus introduces himself as the Holy One of God, even in John 6, 69, we'll get to this in our study of John when we launch the church as we launch with the study of John. But in John chapter 6, at one point Jesus turned to his disciples, you remember this, and, and he said, hey, do you want to go away as well? Because so many people had left Jesus and were, were done following him because he had said difficult things. And when Peter responds and says, where are we to go, Lord? He says this, we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's messianic significance here. And then he goes on, though, and he says, not just the Holy One of God, but also the, the true one. This is in the context of the letter. Again, remember, the, the main source of opposition for this church is this Jewish synagogue. As this church is saying, we found the Messiah, this Jewish synagogue would have been saying, no, he wasn't the Messiah. And so Jesus is, even in this introduction, reminding this church, no, he is the Holy One, he is the Messiah, and he is the true one. In contrast to this expectation that their opponents had. And then he makes this weird statement, right? Weird to us, at least, that he has the key of David. The key of David. What in the world is the key of David? Well, the key of David, this is a, a reference back to a passage in Isaiah. And it's this passage here. It's Isaiah 22, verses 20 through 22. Okay, Isaiah 22, 20 through 22. In fact, we just read about what's going on here in our DBR this week. If you're tracking along with us, we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, you remember Sennacherib came and laid siege to Jerusalem and Judah there. Do you remember that? You tracking? Sennacherib's there, Hezekiah's reign, he's laying siege there to Jerusalem. He's got the Rabshakeh, the Rabshakeh is out there trying to dissuade and discourage the, the Israelites and saying, who do you think your God is to deliver you from, from us? Well, in this context, Isaiah prophesies and says this. He says, in that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And now notice this. This should sound familiar based on what we just read in Revelation. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So here's what this was. This was the, the literal key to the to the royal residence in Jerusalem there, the house of David, the Davidic palace. 
And as Judah was under siege from their enemies and a threat to their very existence, God, through Isaiah the prophet, is reminding the people, hey, look, Eliakim, he's the doorkeeper. No one's getting in here. No one's coming into my house. No one's coming into the, the, the city of David unless Eliakim opens the door for him to get in. That's what Eliakim's role was. Now, unfortunately, Eliakim wouldn't fulfill that very well down the road as it, he would fail in that regard as all human leaders would fail us. But now Jesus is back in Revelation chapter 3 writing to the church in Philadelphia saying he has the key of David. So he's the keeper to who gets in to the house of God. He's the one that, who gets into the kingdom, the Davidic kingdom. Kingdom language. This should start to ring a bell for us a little bit as far as the eschatology goes as he's beginning to talk about now the millennial kingdom, the eternal, the, not the eternal, the, the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. And he's setting this up and he's reminding the church that they will be there. The Jesus, not this Jewish synagogue, not anybody else, but Jesus holds the key to that future hope. That's the introduction for Jesus. He goes on from there to the commendation and we read in chapter three, verses eight, uh, and, the, and then part of verse 10, he says this in verse 8, he says to the church, I know your works. And he said this so many times, it's this encouraging reminder that he is the sovereign Lord of the church, that he sees all, that he is the divine evaluator, the divine assessor of the church. He says, I know your works, and I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. So Jesus is writing about this church saying, you know what, this church is doing it right. He says, yeah, you've got but little power. Smaller city, smaller church, smaller congregation, financial straits all over the place. So this was not a, a, a body of believers that had a lot of clout here. And yet he's saying, you know what, but you're doing it right because you've kept my word about patient endurance. You are staying true and faithful to me, even as these those that claim they're Jews, but they're really not, are persecuting you, even as you're in difficult situations, as you're suffering, as the, the times are hard and, and you don't have a lot of resources, you're holding fast to me. Jesus is saying you're doing well. You're holding fast. The patient endurance is commendable for them. This church is unique amongst the letters, right? Because it also, just like we, we read previously, it does not have any condemnation. Do you notice that when we read? Jesus said, I know your works. And, and we've heard him say that in, in past letters. And then he's gone on to say, but I have this against you, right? What does not he say or what doesn't he say in this letter? He doesn't say, I have this against you. He just says, I, I know your works. And then he goes on. And instead of a condemnation, what we find after this is we find a threefold promise that he gives us. Look at verses eight and nine again. He says, I know your works. Here's the beginning. I, I have set before you an open door. We'll talk about that which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, here's another promise. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. I've set before you an open door. An open door. Well, what is this door? Well, there's been a few suggestions to this. The first is, some have suggested this is the door to salvation. That he's saying, I've set before you this open door to salvation for you, and, and it's an open invitation. You can be saved. I, I don't think that fits the context of the letter. He's writing to faithful Christians already. 
So I don't think it's saying that he set before them, for them, an open door of salvation because they've already come into faith in Christ. Some others have suggested that this is the door to missions. Remember, this was a missionary city for the spread of Hellenism. And so some have said, well, this is Jesus combating that idea by saying, I've set before you an open door for the mission that I have for you, the church. And while that, I think, is more possible than the salvation element, I I still don't think it necessarily fits the context because Jesus is writing to a church that's just in hard times. They are suffering. They are being persecuted. And and it's, it's not his intent here to spur this church on or to imply that this church was not being faithful to the mission at hand. Remember, there's no condemnation. He doesn't say, I have this against you, that you've grown lazy or that you've left your first love or anything else. So then if it's not salvation, if it's not an open door to missions, then what is the open door? Well, remember what we said about Eliakim and the key to the kingdom? That comes back here. Because remember when Jesus said, I've got the key of David and no one's going to shut the door that I open. He's opened a door and I think the door that he's opening, that he's reminding this church of is the door to the future, the door to the then and there, the door to the messianic kingdom. To reign with Christ in the messianic kingdom. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. I've set before you an open door, this door to the messianic kingdom. And then he says, and behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, those that think they have the key, those that, that, that say they are Jews, but they are not, I'll make them come and bow down before you. We'll get to that in just a second, but let's talk about the synagogue of Satan. That may sound like strong language, but it shouldn't come as a shock, right? John chapter eight. Remember Jesus is talking with the religious leaders there and they're going back and forth with each other. And Jesus is saying, you're doing the works of your father. And they bow up and they say, our father's Abraham. Who do you think you are? And Jesus kind of goes back to them and he says, look, I have my father. My father and I were one, one and he has sent me to do the work that I'm doing. But he says, you are of your father, the what? The devil. You are of your father, the devil. And so here we find that, that this is just an in, in indication for us that things have not gotten a whole lot better in the, the, the community of, of Jews at the time that they're still opposing Jesus as the Messiah. They're still not recognizing that he is who he said he was. And so he says, you are a synagogue of Satan. Those that say they are Jews, but they are not because they're rejecting the Messiah. They are rejecting Jesus. In fact, he goes so far as he says, he calls them liars. He says, they are not, but they lie. The contrast with Jesus who introduced the letter by saying that he is the true one. Their opponents, those opposing them, those persecuting them, they are the ones that lie. And he says, I'm going to make them. And then he goes on, come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. What is that talking about? The Jews are going to come bow down before the feet of this church. There's debate as to whether or not this is a, a, a judgment that they're going to bow down in, in their, as they're being judged. Kind of think Philippians chapter two, that every knee will bow Every tongue confess that Christ is Lord, that this is pointing to that possible, or others think that this may be that this is a reference to when the the Jewish people are ultimately redeemed, and and we believe that there is still a future for the Jews, that the Jews will come and, and pay homage and honor the church. Now, let me explain that for a second, because what that doesn't mean is that the church becomes the object of worship, because when it says bow down here, it's the word that we get prostrate from. It's a word that means to worship in the Greek, okay? The Jews are not worshiping the church, but they are worshiping the bride of Christ as the the chief object of his affection. Does that make sense? 
So they are paying honor. They are honoring the bride of Christ. And in honoring the bride of Christ, they are ultimately really honoring who? Jesus. If you honor my wife, you honor me. If you dishonor my wife, you dishonor me. And so Jesus is saying, hey, hold on. Hold fast. Keep going. I know where you are. But I want you to think not about the here and now so much as the then and there. And that's our first point tonight. It's this. Maintain eternal perspectives through temporary trials. Maintain eternal perspectives, the then and there, through temporary trials. And y'all, this is not easy. But it's, it's, it's so good for us to do and so helpful for us to do. There was a beloved professor at Master's College before Amanda and I went there, and he had just retired. And then as we were there, he was diagnosed with cancer and ended up passing away while we were uh, students there. And his name was C.W. Smith. And I'll never forget being, I think it was a chapel, maybe it was one of my classes that I was in, but one of the other professors who was good friends with CW talked about CW on his deathbed. And he said they were there and the cancer had just ravaged this man's body, so much so that he could not speak anymore. And the professors gathered around and and one of them asked CW a question. He said, CW, are you afraid of dying? And C.W. couldn't speak anymore, so he, he motioned, and they gave him his pen and paper, and he wrote on the pen and paper something and handed it to his friend to read. And it said on there, no, because I can't wait to sing again. Can't wait to sing again. On death's doorstep. And what he's thinking about is the then and there. He's thinking about the eternal perspective. He's thinking about praising God, worshiping God with all that he is in that moment. He's not thinking about the fact that the cancer has taken his vocal cords. He's not thinking about the fact that he's not going to see his family members anymore. Do those things weigh on him? Undoubtedly they did. I'm sure from time to time they did. But the abiding hope that he had that caused him to be one that that finished the race well, that kept persevering, that kept holding fast, was this hope that he had and this confidence and the surety that he had and then then and there, the eternal perspective that said, man, I'm I'm going to breathe my last here, but I'm going to go be with him. And and for the last 20 years or so, he's been with Jesus, singing and praising him in his presence. That's eternal perspective in the midst of temporary trials. Jesus doesn't write to this church and tell the church, hey, you know what? You're suffering, but... things are going to get more comfortable for you. Just hold fast for a couple of years and things will get better in the next presidential election. Jesus didn't tell this impoverished church, hey, you know what? Just hang tight for a a minute and I'll bring a big donor to you and then everything will be cush. Or inflation will go down. No, Jesus didn't tell this church that they were going to grow and gain power in the here and now. Instead, he pointed them to eternity. He pointed them to what's coming next and said, set your hope there. This church was up against this prominent group of Jews and its main source of persecution. So Jesus directed their hope specifically towards the millennial kingdom. And that may be a fuzzy concept for us, although we find it laid out for us very clearly in in Revelation chapter 20. And I don't have the time to read through it all, but let me encourage you to do that at some point this week. And I just want you to notice how many times it says 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years in the context there of Revelation chapter 20. And so Jesus is pointing to them. And one of the things it says there of the the dead, of the the believers who have died prior to Christ's return, it says there in verse 4 of Revelation 20 that they came to life and reigned with Christ 
for a thousand years. And so there we see that the church during the millennial kingdom will be reigning and ruling with Jesus for that time. You say, what is that going to be like? What does that mean? I say, I don't know. But I know it's going to be good because we're going to be with our Savior and whatever that looks like, it's going to be awesome. And this is not ruling and reigning in a way to, to, to compete with Jesus, but this is as his stewards. He's entrusting to us the stewardship here. So for this church with little to no power against their opposition, this was a reminder of the certainty of that coming kingdom and their secure place within. I've opened a door for you that no one can shut, right? I don't know if you were following the news this week, but there was a picture for the Toronto Blue Jays that shared a post on his Instagram that was supporting the boycott of some companies that have been pro-LGBTQ this week. And the team first forced him to publicly apologize, which he did, although he said, look, I'm sorry if I hurt anyone, but I, I basically said, I, I, I stand by what I, I, I posted. This is, it goes against my convictions. Well, two or three days later, he was cut from the team. For a post that he made on his personal Instagram page about his convictions that are biblical convictions. There's a new bill in, in California, by the way, also that would make it uh, allowable for the state to criminally prosecute a parent who does not affirm their child's chosen gender identity. Y'all, if we haven't suffered for our faith yet, it may not be far away. And so we need to prepare this mindset of thinking eternally now when maybe you're not in the valley. Maybe you're not in the valley here. You're, you, things are going relatively well for you. Let me still encourage you. Think about the then and there, not the here and now. Because it could change in a heartbeat. If you are in the valley, if you are in the trial, let me offer this hope to you. I can't promise you that you're going to come out of it until God calls you home. Then I know you'll come out of it. Because you'll be with Jesus. Eternal perspective. Our hope is not for things to get better here and now. Yeah, we can pray towards that end and we should work towards that end. We should be salt and light in the community. We should have a positive impact on this, this culture that we find ourselves in. And we can pray for our leaders and pray that they make wise decisions that allow the church to grow and flourish and the gospel to go forth. We can pray for that and hope for that, but y'all, that is not our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is to be with Jesus. That's promise part one. Promise part two. They're shorter. Two and three are shorter. So if you're wondering, you're going, oh no, they're shorter. I promise. <laughs> no pun. Verses 10 through 11. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Okay, here we go. Ready for a crash course in eschatology? Really quick. 30,000 foot view. It's going to create questions. That's great. But I'm not going to answer them tonight unless you catch me afterwards. Then I'm happy to answer them. But here we go. Ready? What's happening next? First, we find ourselves right now in what's called the last hour. 1 John 2.18 says that this is the last hour. He says, children, it is the last hour. Okay? That's, that's where we find ourselves. It is the last hour. Well, what comes next? What comes next, according to our convictions and what we believe Scripture teaches, is called the rapture. The rapture is when Christ comes back for his bride, the church. And you may be out there throwing a flag on the place saying the Bible never uses the word rapture. And let me tell you, you're right. It doesn't. It doesn't use the, the word rapture. 
But it does talk about things that imply that and point to that. First Thess 4.17 talks about the church being caught up together with the Lord in the air. Our passage here, I'll get to in just a moment why I think that this is also another evidence for the, the rapture of the church. That the church is going to be taken prior to what comes next, which is the tribulation period. The tribulation period is seven years during which the wrath of God is poured out upon what's called in, in Jeremiah 20, the, the trouble of Israel or the time of Israel's trouble. This is God uh, purging his, the, the, the wickedness from his people. There's going to be a, 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 a time here during this, and there's a lot that goes on, but if you've read the Left Behind series, you're, you're kind of tracking at least with Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins and, and their point on, on what all that was going to be about. But this is a seven-year period where the wrath of God is being poured out on the people of Israel, starting in Revelation chapter 6 and moving forward to through about chapter 18, 19, we get a lot of what that's going to look like. The bold judgments, the trumpet judgments, the seals, so forth and so on. We, you don't want to be here during the tribulation, okay? Although people will be saved out of it. We do believe that. What happens after the tribulation? That's Armageddon. You've heard of that, right? Bruce Willis was in this movie where they had to go and blow up the, the meteor. I don't want to close my eyes. don't want to miss a thing. Anybody tracking? Okay. That's not Armageddon. Armageddon is, comes from Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo. It's a, a plain that you can go to. It's a valley in Israel where you can go and you can see where this last battle is going to take place. And here's the thing, y'all. Satan and the beast and the Antichrist, they get all of the armies together and they, they, they have everybody there and all the world powers are gathered together there. And Jesus comes back and guess what doesn't happen? There's not a single shot fired because Jesus immediately wins. We sang the, word, the, the song in the church that I went to this morning, one little word shall fell him. Well, this is the end of the beast and the Antichrist. But what comes after that is the millennial kingdom, during which Satan is bound, Revelation 20 talks about, is bound for this thousand years. And so Satan is prohibited from activity during this thousand years, the, the time that Christ is reigning on earth, the time that we've been talking about, the hope for this church, the hope for us as well as Christians, that we will reign with him during that time. That's what happens after Armageddon. Well, after that, the Bible says Satan is released for a little bit of time and allowed to go out and deceive as many as he can. They gather together again for Satan's last stand here. And that, just like the, the, the Armageddon, that doesn't go well for him. God comes back. Jesus stands up against Satan. And he is immediately defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. After that comes the great white throne. The great white throne is where the, the lost, the unbelievers, are judged. It says according to what they have done. Finally, after that, we have the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? Again, that's a lot of information to take in. And, and I, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry because it helps us <laughs> with what he's talking about here. And, and I don't know how to treat it without hitting all that stuff so that we can really understand what, what Jesus was, was writing here. Because Jesus says, I'm about to keep you or I will keep you because you've held fast to me. I'm going to keep you from the time of, of trouble or from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. What is the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole earth to try those that are on the earth, to test those who dwell on the earth? Y'all, it's the, the seven-year tribulation period. Jesus is promising this church that he will keep them because their faithfulness to him, he will keep them from the tribulation. That they will not suffer that. 
there's reasons why, again, I, I don't have a lot of time to go into why we think that this refers to the tribulation. It's yet future at the time that Jesus is writing. It's a time of trouble that goes across the entire earth, right? So this is unique. There has not been something like that to this date uh, that, that is this extent. And this promise is given to this church. He says, I'm going to keep you from it. Keep you not through it. Not that I'm going to preserve you in the midst of the tribulation. Because there are, are those that are going to be saved during the tribulation and, and they're, going to, they're going to die during that time. But no, the, the promise is Jesus says, I'm going to preserve you. I'm going to keep you. Christians are being kept, how? By being removed. Again, we believe that this points to the rapture and then the promise that follows that is, I am coming, what? Soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may see your, seize your crown. I am coming soon. I'm going to keep you from this hour of trial and you know what, y'all? I am coming soon. Here's the thing. If Jesus is going to keep that faithful church from the hour of trial coming upon the whole earth, he's going to keep you and I from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole earth. And the statement that he made to that church when he said, I am coming soon, written around 90 AD-ish in that realm. I don't, I'm not a math major, but we're almost 2,000 years away from that. Guess what? We're 2,000 years closer to him being here. And if he was coming soon then, how much more so could we say, we need to be ready for the return of Christ now? Because he's coming for us at some point. And so we need to be ready, church, as we think about that, as we think about launching this church, this brand new church. Man, you know what? If Jesus came back our, our launch Sunday on August 6, 2013, I'm not setting dates. Let me just be clear. I'm not setting dates. Do not, quote, do not go out and be like, Compass Bible Church thinks you. No, but if he did, right? I mean, think about it. There's been so much prayer going into this church plant. There's been so much excitement going into this church plant. Some of y'all left everything in California to come out to this church plant. Some of y'all been out here in Texas suffering under this heat for so long and you've been waiting for a church plant to get out here. Whatever. If he came back that day, would it be disappointing? No. Because we'll be with Jesus. Right? That's our ultimate hope and we need to be ready for that. And that's our second point tonight is this. Live expecting Jesus' imminent return. He's coming for us, y'all. He's going to keep us from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole earth. And he's coming at any time. When he says, I'm coming soon. The doctrine of the imminence of Christ's return, here's what that means. There's nothing left, prophetically speaking, that needs to be accomplished before Jesus comes back for his bride. We're not waiting for anything else to happen where we could go, okay, well then after this happens, then I'll be ready for, I'll, I'll get ready for Jesus to come when I see this happen. No, all the dominoes have fallen. The last one to fall is the return for the church. So y'all, we need to be ready. Because we don't know. In fact, Jesus told so many parables, right, about that, telling us that we should be ready. In Mark 13, he said, be on guard, keep awake. He said, because you don't know when the time will come. And then he compared his return to the man that goes on the journey and sets his servants in charge of some things. And he says, I'm, I'm, I'm coming back. Stay awake. And he says, blessed is the one he finds doing what his master has given him to do. And then he warns against those that fall asleep. He says, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, verse 35, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That's what we're talking about here, church. We need to be ready for Christ's return at any time. Matthew's gospel, the, the parable, the, the, the virgins, there were some that were ready that had enough oil. There were others that didn't have enough. And when they went away to, to get more oil, that's when Jesus came, when the, 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 the bridegroom came. And they weren't ready for him. 
we need to be a church that's ready for Jesus to come back. And so I ask, are you ready for Christ's return at any moment? Here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about your thought life. When Christ comes back, what do you want to be thinking about? Man, I want you to think about your words. When Christ comes back, what, what do you want to be in the midst? If he comes back and you're talking to somebody, what do you want to be talking about? And clearly, your actions. When Jesus comes back, what do you want to be found doing? And now let me ask you another question. If you knew that this was truly the last 60 minutes, let me give you uh, more time. If you knew that this was the last week, what would you want to be doing? Or if I told you, you know what? Jesus is coming back sometime in the next seven days. Be ready. What would you be doing between now and the next seven days? My guess is you wouldn't kick back and be like, well, he's probably not coming back on Monday. So on Monday, I'm going to just binge on all my sin. Maybe he'll come back on Tuesday, so I'll cut out most of my sin and I'll make sure that I prayed and repented, but then I, I, I'm not going to give up all my sin because it's only Tuesday. No, my guess is you'd be like, man, it, he's going to come back at any point in the next seven days? I want to be ready. Church, he could come back in the next seven days. He could come back in the next seven minutes. What do you want to be doing? What, what do you want your Savior to find you doing when he returns? This is a chilling verse in 1 John chapter 2. He says, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Abide in Christ. Obey the Lord Jesus. Do what he's calling us to do. Follow his word. Love him and run after him with all that you are so that when he comes, he finds you doing the things that will please him and bring him honor. I'm not suggesting your works save you. You are saved by Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Okay? His work is, is finished. It is finished. It is done. I'm just saying we need to live ready for his return because we want to be ready to go when he gets here. Another reason why we should live ready is we should be living ready as we think about our lost neighbors, friends, family, loved ones in our lives. If you knew Jesus was going to come back at any time in the next seven days, who do you need to talk to about that? Go talk to them this week. Feel the urgency of his imminent return. Finally, verses 12 and 13. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In a city known for its instability, Jesus promises this faithful believer such clear permanence and security. That's the, the promise here towards the end. He says, the one who conquers, which is the believer, right? Romans 8, 37. Knowing all these things, we are more than, we're more than conquerors. Through who? Him who loved us. Who loved us? Jesus. We are conquerors because of Jesus. So the one who conquers is the one who conquers in Christ. In fact, the, the broader context of that verse, if you know it, he goes on and he talks in verses 38 and following, and he talks about all the things that can't separate you from the one who conquers, which is Jesus. You're united to him. Nothing is going to separate you from his love. And so we can have that confidence to the one who conquers. What's going to happen? What's the promise? He goes on, he says, he's going to be a pillar in the temple of my God. You go to Israel today, you know what you see a lot of still standing? Pillars. 
The walls are gone. The roofs are gone. The doors are gone. The windows, I don't even know if they had windows. But you know what's still standing? In a lot of those places, the pillars. Because they were secure. They were the foundation pieces. Jesus is saying, you're going to be established securely in the kingdom of my God. And then he goes on and he says, never shall he go out of it. You remember in the intro I said that the city was destroyed in 17 AD and even as far as 90 AD, people were still unsure about living in the city. They still didn't feel safe in the city. He says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the house of my God and you're never going to want to leave. There's going to be no insecurity there. And then he goes on and he says, and then there's this new name. In fact, it's a threefold name. He says, I'm going to write on you first the, the name of my God. Okay? What is this? Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is Yahweh, God, speaking. And here Jesus is saying, you're going to be called by the Father's name. In other words, you're going to be fully adopted into that family. Your, your right, your welcome into the, the permanent family of God will be finished and finally completed. And then he goes on though and he says, not only the name of God, but the name of, of the city of God. Which is what? It's the, the new Jerusalem. Here we see in Ezekiel chapter 48, 35, the circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits. That's not the important part because I couldn't tell you how many feet that is right now. But here it is. The name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. You're going to have that name because guess what? You're going to be with the Lord. You're going to have the name of the city of my God there. The significance is that, that God will be there and you will be with God. And then the final name that we're going to get is this new name. This new name of Jesus. What in the world is that? Philippians 2.9, is that the name that is above every name? It's possible. Uh, other, elsewhere, Jesus says in Revelation 19.12 that he's going to have a, a name written that no one knows. Uh, or John's describing the, the, the image of Jesus here. And he's got a name written that no one knows but himself. This new name. Do we know what that is? No, it's going to be revealed to us at some point, but here's the point. You're going to share it with your elder brother, your co-heir, Jesus. In a world desperate for security, this is secure as it gets. And, and, and here's the cool thing. We can anchor our hope to that reality is going to happen someday. In fact, in John 14, you remember what Jesus said? He said, if I leave you, I go to do what? To prepare a place for you. That where I am when I come back, you can be with me. Our final point tonight is this. Trust that God is preparing your eternal home. Trust that God is preparing your eternal home. John 14, Jesus has just told the disciples he's getting ready to leave. They're going, w w hold on, time out. That's not what we had planned, Jesus. And Jesus encourages them and comforts them, and he does so this way. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Trust. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Jesus is right now preparing your eternal home. What does that look like? Well, it says in Scripture that He is seated at the right hand of God. It also says that He's always living to make intercession for us, so that we are always secure, that, that we will be brought to full a realization of our future in, in being with him. We are secure in that your eternal place with Christ is secure and you can trust in that even in all the uncertainty of the world around us. 
there was a show that I remember from a long time ago, and I, I, thankfully I don't think I ever watched an episode. I just saw the title of it and was just flabbergasted. But the show was called I Didn't Know I Was Pregnant. And some of you are like, oh, yeah, I binge-watched it. I know all of what happened. That's great. Awesome. You keep that. Um, but some of these women would go all the way until they were, like, ready to give birth. And I'm not a woman, obviously. Okay, obviously. I don't understand all of that and, and if that's even possible. From my perspective, it's not. It's not possible. But here's what I know. I know that when we found out that we were having twins, we went into overdrive on getting ready for them. We were prepping everything. We were like, okay, we need two car seats. We need two cribs. We need to, we don't, our car's not big enough. We're going to need something. Like everybody's like, oh, you got twins, two for one. Uh Uh-uh. Only thing they shared is the womb. That's it. Everything else, two for two on all of them. (laughs) My point is this. When you find out that you're expecting a child, you prepare for that child. You prepare to bring that child home. And that's not something that you take flippantly. You don't just like throw a box on the floor and throw some blankets in it and be like, he'll be fine. No, you you get the crib. You put the crib together and you regressively sanctify as you're putting the crib together. But you take the time because you love that child. Jesus is preparing a place for you to come and be with him. And he says here that you're going to be a pillar in the temple of his God. That you will never leave. Man, that is as secure as it gets here, y'all. That is our hope. I, I talked about that maintaining an eternal perspective in the midst of temporary trials. This is part of our eternal perspective is the trust that Jesus is preparing a place for us. And look, I understand that there are pains in this world. I understand that the, there are the, the diagnoses that come back. I understand that there are broken air conditioners in church buildings that make it just super hot in here. No, but I understand that there are, are, are real trials that we go through. I'm not suggesting there's not. And, and look, there are times for us to weep with one another. Scripture's clear about that. But that doesn't change this hope that we have fixed. That there is a certain day fixed on God's calendar when He's coming back for you to bring you to the home that He's preparing for you. Trust that God is preparing your eternal home. Paul in Romans 18 with that mindset said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not to minimize or trivialize pain here. It's to magnify our future with Christ. There is some spiritual truth to that old adage, no pain, no gain. Not that somehow we have to pay for our future eternity because it's a free gift of God's grace. But more because as believers in this world where we find ourselves living, we're going to find pain and suffering and heartache and trials and anxiety and doubt and depression and fear. Not only that, but just in a post-Genesis 3 world, this world is broken. Cancer does exist. Sickness and disease does exist. Car accidents do happen. But that's why a passage like this is so encouraging. Because it reminds us that though we may know pain presently, for eternity, all we will ever know is gain. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for that great reality that our hope is fixed on Christ and that that is unchangeable and that that will never be shaken. And we are so grateful for that. And we praise you for that. So Lord, I just pray that you would encourage us this week. Those in this room, I don't know what everybody is walking through, but I know in a room with this many people, there are people that are hurting right now. And I just pray that you would encourage them with the reality that that future is firmly fixed for them if they are in Christ. And God, on the, the heels of that, I pray that if there's anyone here that is not trusting Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they would do so quickly. You are coming back soon as you promised in your word. And so I pray that everyone, everyone in this room would be ready. God, even those children that we have being taught down this hallway, God, I pray that you would be laying foundations of biblical truths of who Jesus is so that someday soon they will all also come to bow the knee and trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior here and now. And so God, we hope in that. We pray for that. And we look forward to being with you in the meantime. Until we're there, help us to be faithful in everything that we do, that Christ may be exalted through our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.